Good morning, everybody. So if you've got your Bibles there, we're in Exodus chapter 28, and we're just going to finish a chapter today. It's just a, a small section today, starting at verse 30. And I just pray as we open up. Father, thank you, Lord, that you're an awesome God. You're a great God. You're a merciful God. And we thank you that you promised that your spirit would lead us into all truth and that your spirit would teach us of things to come. And we just pray you'll give us understanding as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we learned about the bronze altar and the court of the tabernacle, some of the clothes the high priest would wear, the ephod, the breastplate, the blue robe, the white tunic, the sash, the two onyx stones on his shoulders, the turban and the plaque, which says, Holiness to the Lord. There's the bronze altar where they did the sacrifices. There's another view of that with the grate in the middle. There's an overview of the tabernacle complex. It's 75 feet wide, 150 feet long, and then the inside part is 60 feet by 20 feet. So the Holy of Holies is um, this section here. It's 40 feet by 20 feet, and this other bit is 20 by 20. This week, we're going to continue to learn about the clothing of the high priest, in particular the Urim and the Thummim. So that's the interesting thing. The other priests, or the priests apart from the high priest, they would wear a white tunic, a sash, and a turban or a hat. And all the priests had to wear linen trousers under their tunics. In chapter 29, it's going to be very interesting. We're going to see how they're set apart for ministry. So I've left that for another day because it's a big concept. So here is inside the Holy of Holies, the, the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. There's a showbread, so if you walk in, that's on your right, into the, holy, into the holy place. The menorah is on the left, and the altar of incense is before the curtain, the veil, which prevents access to the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest's clothing, you've got the turban, the gold plate, the two onyx stones on his shoulders, the white tunic, the long sleeve tunic, the 12 stones with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, You've got the sash, the ephod, that blue ephod that's hanging from his shoulders, goes down just above his knees. You've got the blue robe with the bells and pomegranates on it. So we'll probably talk about that today as well. Let's start at verse 31. And we'll continue with the clothing of the high priest. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. So remember that the high priest is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the high priest. So what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, here we see Christ, the heavenly one. Blue speaks of, the, of heaven, or deity. John tells us it was because he knew from where he came and where he was going that he washed his disciples' feet. So God, Jesus, knew where he'd come from and where he was going, and that gave him the strength to be a servant or the motivation to be a servant. Now, some people say, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. However, I would say that we're no earthly good until we're heavenly-minded. If we're not heavenly-minded, we're going to get bogged down, consumed with taking care of our toys, our trinkets, and the things in this world. The temporary things. But as I choose to be heavenly minded, to put my eyes in that heavenly city, 
I get the big picture of eternity and I can enjoy this life so much more because I don't take this life so seriously. I'm not worried about all these things that are always breaking and falling apart and wearing out. Verse 33, And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple and scarlet all around its hem. So the pomegranate is an interesting fruit. It's got more seeds, as far as I've, I know. It's got more seeds than any other fruit, because they're very small seeds, and it's a blood-red interior. So application here, on the cross, Jesus shed his blood in order that his spirit might bear much fruit through seeds like you and me. And bells of gold between them all around, and um, this is another interpretation here. Uh, if pomegranates speak of the fruit of the Spirit, the bells could speak of the gifts of the Spirit. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate and a, upon the hem of the robe all around. So as he's walking around, they've got this jingling sound of bells. And the bells don't hit each other because they've got these pomegranates in the middle. If they hit each other, it wouldn't make probably a very nice sound. You imagine, you know, ringing bells and hitting the bells together, it wouldn't sound very good. Well, think of the pomegranates as the fruit of the Spirit and the bells as the gifts of the Spirit. If you go to Corinthians, the two main chapters on the gifts of the Spirit, chapters 12 and 14, are separated by chapter 13, which is love, the fruit of the Spirit. So the gifts of the Spirit are pretty much useless without love. We need both. So verse 35, And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. So the high priest and the other priests would go into the tabernacle to minister to the Lord, to trim the candles, burn incense, take care of the showbread, and once a year, on the Day of Atonement, to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat within the Holy of Holies. Now he's out of sight of all the people because no one else was allowed into that Holy of Holies. And when he did the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement ceremonies, he was by himself in there. But as long as I heard the bells in his robe, they knew he was okay. I've heard a theory, a tradition, that they tie a rope to his foot so they could pull him out if he died. So how do we know that Jesus is living? Jesus is our high priest. Well, we hear the bells, the sounding of the gifts of his spirit. Remember Pentecost? He, the spirit came upon people and the gifts were given. And we also have the fruit of the spirit in our hearts as we grow to be more like him and empowered by the spirit to love with God's agape love. Verse 36, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holiness to the Lord and you should put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban and it should be on the front of the turban so it should be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts and it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord so here we see Christ the Holy One so the words holiness to the Lord are on the plate that was on the forehead of the high priest. Jesus, the great high priest, has holiness on his mind. 
Now, what does the word holy mean? Well, simply put, it just means to be whole or complete. Holiness adds to who we are. It makes us complete. On the other hand, sin robs, sin erodes, and sin destroys. Sin makes us incomplete. So, holiness leads to happiness. Jesus lived life in such a way that fishermen would leave their nets, radical zealots their politics, tax collectors would leave their money to follow him. There was this quality about Jesus, a vitality, a vibrancy about him, because he was holy, because he was a complete person. So holiness is not prudishness or being stuffy or severe or strict or stern or legalistic. Quite the opposite. Because true holiness makes your life whole, you become appealing to other people. You're a well-balanced person. You're a whole person. And you're set apart for use by God. So verse 39, You shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen and you shall make the sash of woven work. So here we see Christ, the perfect one. Now the Talmud tells us that the fine linen of the coat was woven with 540 threads per square inch. So normally your sheets aren't that much. White linen speaks of righteousness, and this fine linen speaks of perfection. So Jesus is perfect. He's our perfect high priest. Jesus is our spotless lamb. Pilate said, I can find no fault in this man. Verse 40, for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics. So we have the high priest and now we've got the other priests. So the application for us here is that we are a royal priesthood because we are linked to our great high priest. Aaron's sons were also priests because of their family connection to Aaron. So us as priests of God, in a figurative sense, the coats or the, the white linen tunics they would wear speak of righteousness and salvation. Now I've got a picture here of the clothing the other priests would wear. You've got the white hat or um, turban, you've got the colourful sash, and you've got the white tunic there. There's a verse that talks about what those mean. Psalm 132 verses 9 and 16, it says, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. So the white linen represents the righteousness that we have in Christ. There's another verse that talks about that. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So us, as kings and priests in the kingdom of God, that's what we're clothed with. That's what the white garment represents. So this means that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our filthy rags, our sin-stained filthy rags of our righteousness, but he sees the fine linen of his son. We're clothed in his righteousness. And you shall make sashes for them, continuing verse 40. So these sashes would stop the tunic from you know, flapping around. If they wanted to run those days, they'd have to pull up their tunic and 
so it wouldn't get in the way of their legs. So in the same way, the sash, as we talked about last week, represents service, but it also, for us, can represent submission. We're girding our minds to bring into submission any stray thought which would exalt itself against Christ in order that nothing would trip us up so that we can minister more effectively. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We want to be able to gird up the lines of our minds and bring into submission all those straight thoughts so we can run the race effectively. Verse 40, And you shall make hats for them, for glory and beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. Just a reminder, last week talked about the difference between ministering to people versus ministering to God. So again, the emphasis here is on ministering to God. So the third thing the sons of Aaron were to wear were these white bonnets or turbans, which symbolize submission. Now, Jews wear the yarmulke, those little caps on their heads. They wear that as an outward sign of God's authority, of submission to God's authority. And so we need to remember that we need to be in submission to God's authority too. So we're his priests and we should have this attitude of submission, this attitude of humility. Now, where do we get this from? From prayer. When we pray to the Lord, it's not giving orders. It's God, do this for me and do that for me. It's actually reporting for duty. It's saying, God, here I am. What do you want me to do? What is your will for my life? What is your will for me today? Show me what you want me to do. Show me if there's anything I need to change. So prayer is like saying, Lord, I come before you to talk things over with you. But I know that you see things I don't and know things I can't. Therefore, I submit to your will. God knows more than we do. He's wiser than us. So it's wise for us to submit to him. Verse 42, And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. So underneath the robe, out of the sight of the people, there was to be righteousness. This white linen, out of the sight of the people. This is what people can't see. This is called our character. So the outside that people see is called reputation. The inside that God sees is our character. We tend to be more concerned with our reputation. Sometimes. Some people are more concerned about their reputation, about what people think about me. But character is different. Character is what or who I truly am. There are those who have a great reputation in the sight of others, but their character is sadly lacking. And on the other hand, there are those who may have been accused unjustly, but whose character is pure. So Paul tells us that Jesus made himself of no reputation, but he is the man who had the greatest character. Philippians 2, 5-7 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming 
in the likeness of men. So Jesus just laid aside his reputation. He was hated, he was persecuted, he was eventually killed, and in his eye they thought he was cursed by God. And so basically reputation is not that important because reputation comes and goes. But character is forever. You take that with you. 43. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. So if the priests were not willing to wear these trousers or the turban or the sash or the belt or the robe, then they would die. They wouldn't survive the ministry. Does that make sense? You either wear them or you don't. So there's people today, remember thinking of us as priests now, there's people today with great potential who end up on the sidelines because they fail to clothe themselves with the garments of righteousness and submission freely provided by the Father. Others, however, gird up their minds, concern themselves with their character rather than their reputation, and submit to the Father in all things. And those are the ones who move from strength to strength. And God can use them in ever-widening spheres of ministry. Now, the Urim and the Thummim. All right. I just want to spend a bit of time now just talking about the Urim and the Thummim. Because we often want to know, well, how do I know what God's will is? We don't actually know exactly how these stones worked. But the people, when they needed advice, would go to the high priest. And the high priest would consult with the Urim and the Thurim and would give them the answer that they needed. So, as I said, we don't know how it worked, but these stones were kept in the breastplate. And he'd put his hand in there and pull out a stone and something would happen and he'd get the answer from God. So it sounds pretty good. If we had someone in the world and you could ask them a question, and just say, would you just reach your hand in there and, and give me a yes or a no for this question? It's pretty nice, eh? All right. But think about the limitations on that. You live in Australia, and they're in Israel. That's where the temple is, or was. And either you travel there, or you call them on the phone. But everyone's trying to get advice from God. And so you're on the queue. You are number 3,457. Please hold, and we'll get to your call as soon as we can. All right. So it's not going to happen. The Urim and the Thurim were only consulted for matters which were very important, which had a major consequence, like David would ask the high priest, do we go and fight this battle? And stuff like that. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, he said, I am the light of the world. So 1,500 years later, Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Matthew 28, 20. So, Jesus is the light of the world. He is our guidance. We don't need the Urim and the Thurim anymore. Now, also, with the priests, you wouldn't go and say, my kids are lying, and they're both telling me different things. I don't know who's telling the truth, and you can't go to the priest about that because it's not important enough. But Peter says... Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. First Peter 5, 7. So anytime, any place, any direction, all we need to do is ask. So how do we know God's will? Well, 
Where were the stones kept that would give direction? Now, over the heart of the high priest. So, for us, the Lord gives us direction, not by a breastplate worn over the heart, but by a branding he does upon our hearts. Jeremiah 31.33 says, But this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this is a new covenant. This is not the old covenant, it's a new covenant. So it's not an external thing anymore. God is telling us that he will put his will and his guidance within our hearts. David says in Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I love what Augustine said. He said, love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and do whatever you want. So I'll say that again. Love God with all your mind and heart and soul and strength and do whatever you want. Because if you're loving God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, your desires are linked with his. You're in communion with him. And what he wants becomes what you want. And so you do what you want. It's a life of perfect satisfaction. So, why do I live in Esperance? Well, I want to. Why do I teach the Bible? Because I enjoy it. I'm just walking in God's will. And I'm enjoying it. So, I believe that if I'm simple and humble enough to believe God's promise, that if I delight in Him, He'll put the desires in my heart, which conform to His perfect plan for me. Then I just need to do what I want to do and It'll be his will. Now, if you're not delighting in the Lord, and unfortunately all of us are sometimes not delighting in the Lord because we're not perfect, we're not delighting in the Lord all the time, our hearts can lead us on a dangerous path. So we can't always rely on what our heart is saying. So what else is there to guide us? Well, We are living stones. God has made his new temple of living stones. It says here, this is First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So, we're living stones. We can help each other to understand the will of God. Remember in Acts 13, Paul and Silas and others were worshipping in the church there at Antioch. And certain prophets in the church said, separate Paul and Barnabas for the ministry. So God can work in the church to give us guidance. Now, why does God want to work through the church? Well, God loves family. We're part of a family. We work together. Now, I've talked to a lot of people, and some people say, indirectly, they say, I don't actually need my brothers and sisters. I get irritated with them. I see all kinds of flaws in them. I'll just figure out my own life, just me and God. 
But that's not the heart of the Father. What did Jesus say in Matthew 18.20? Wherever two or three meet together in my name, I will be in the midst of them. Now, it's talking about church discipline there. It's a context, but the application still applies to other things. What happens in our families when we have problems? Do we just go off on our own and figure it out for ourselves? No, we have a family meeting and we work it out. A husband and wife have a problem. What do you do? Do it yourself? No, you sit together and you work it out. If you don't, nothing gets resolved. Nothing gets solved. So God is saying to us, you're going to be together forever. In eternity, we're going to be together forever. So he's saying, I want you to get to know each other and appreciate one another on this side of eternity. And think of the fire analogy. If you take a coal out of the fire, it will soon stop glowing orange or red and become cold. If you put that cold coal out of the fire, back into the fire, it will soon start glowing and burning again. So fellowship is vital for the Christian walk. In Hebrews it says, And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So God wants us to learn from each other. He wants us to guide each other. We can ask people advice. We can ask them. And sometimes God will give us a word for somebody else. But that can be wrong too. So, so far we've covered our heart impressions, our heart thoughts. We've covered what other people can tell us. But both of those things can be flawed. They can be wrong. So the final authority and what I think should be the first authority is the Word of God. Some people say, I don't know what to do. Well, I might ask them, what's the Lord been showing you in your Bible study, in your morning devotions? My what? <laughs> My morning devo- your morning devotions? Um, well, Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. So we have this awesome book. It shows us so much about God and his will for our lives. Yes, he puts impressions and desires in my heart. Yes, he speaks to my brothers and sisters in the family. But above all, most importantly, he speaks through his word. Now, if the desires of your heart or the interaction with people don't agree with the word of God, well, then it's wrong. That's very simple. We can be sure it's God's direction for our life if all those things line up, if we've prayed about it and God's confirmed that to us. So we've done all that. Are there any stipulations or conditions to know God's will? And I would say that yes, there's two. We need to have faith and we need to have a pure heart. So talking about faith, why do we need to have faith to know God's will? James, chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So why does God want us to trust him? Why is faith a prerequisite to prayer? Why do we have to have faith in order to get our prayers answered? 
Because what he's saying there, if you don't have faith, your prayers won't be answered. Well, faith is God's language. We're either depending on him or we're not. We need to learn to trust. The opposite to faith is doubt or unbelief. That's called sin. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23, second part of that verse. The first generation of the children of Israel did not enter into the promised land because of unbelief, a lack of faith. And our lives, if we choose not to develop our faith, will become unproductive and unfruitful if we don't exercise this muscle called faith. And I'm just going to read, it's a fairly long section, it's about 10 verses, in Hebrews, and it talks about these Israelites. And it's a good admonition or warning for us. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. Do they have enough evidence to know that what God said was true? Do they have enough evidence to know that God was able to do what he promised to do? Absolutely. Okay. So I was angry with them and I said, Their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger I took an oath, they will never enter my place of rest. And now the application for us. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day, while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. That's the deceitfulness of sin. So the bottom line is that if I have doubt in my heart, I'm never ever going to know God's will for me. Why? Well, why would God tell me his will if I don't trust him? Because even if he did tell me, I wouldn't do it anyway. <laughs> Does that make sense? Here's an example that shows God's attitude to people who pray with doubt. Ezekiel 14 verses 1 to 3. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity or sin. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? No. The no is not in the Bible, but that's what's implied. So, an idol is anything in our lives that is more important than God, that takes priority over God, that we trust more than God. And I just want to encourage you to look at the great cloud of witnesses we see in the Bible. We have Abraham, we have David, we have Samuel, Moses, Paul, Daniel, Stephen. You can go on. The missionaries are so inspiring. Our family has bought the Torchlighter series. It's an animated retelling of the lives of various missionaries or Bible translators. And um, it's pretty accurate to what they did and what they said. And I'm moved every time I see that my faith is encouraged as I read testimonies of missionaries and watch these animated movies with my kids. I just love it. 
one thing that is common to all of them is their simple faith and trust in God. They relied only on the Lord. He was their provider. He was everything they need. So how do we get this faith? If you're saying, well, I just don't feel like I've got much faith. Here's your answer. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Why? Because there's so many examples in the Bible of people relying on the Lord and God coming through. So that's the first thing we need if we're going to want to know God's will. Faith. We need to believe that he's willing and able to guide us. The other thing that I want to talk about is purity, a spirit of integrity. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright shall guide them. So the Hebrew word translated integrity is tama, which comes from the word thumin. So it speaks of perfection and absence of double-mindedness. So he's going back to the urim and the thumin. It's this word, the root is the same word. So an absence of double-mindedness. So many times people say, Lord, what's your opinion on this? What would you see as being best for me? But what they're really saying is, Lord, I'll try and do what you want me to do after I've made my own decision. I'll try and fit in what you want after I've made my decision. So they've already made the decision to marry that girl or take this job or move to that place. And theirs are the prayers that God doesn't answer, for he can't direct people who aren't committed to obeying him. So I spoke to a Christian guy yesterday, and he's married to a non-Christian lady, and he's struggling with alcohol and he's just you know he's in this place where he's got an idol in his heart and he's not hearing from the lord and he's quite miserable so i'm just going to read romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 it says i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable to god which is your reasonable service and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove or know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the emphasis here is on that last part, that last phrase, that you may prove or know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I'm going to read it from another translation, New Living. It just helps bring the message out a bit more. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Should we trust God, seeing he's already done so much for us? Is there anything he won't do for us? Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. We need to live a holy life, a pure life. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So we need to be changed from our sinful character into a more godly character. And as that happens, more and more God's will will be made clear to us. So because God's in love with us, God wants the best for us. 
And he's saying to us, you will know my good and acceptable and perfect will when you sacrifice your right to make your own decisions. Because our decisions please our flesh, our old man, our sinful nature. And at last, when we come to that place where we say, Lord, I'm tired of calling the shots, I'm tired of making my own decisions, please tell me what to do, for I intend to obey you fully, gladly, and joyfully, with integrity, he says, great, I'll be happy to. It's only when we learn to live in total dependence on God that we truly experience a peace of God which passes understanding dwelling in our hearts. So if we continue to seek to please the flesh, to make willful decisions to disobey, this is not about faith, this is about decisions not to obey, to not lead a life of purity and integrity, then we will end up being destroyed. We'll make it to heaven, but our witness and our ministry will be destroyed. Now here's an example to finish off. The Israelites, they sinned, they went into captivity to Babylon. This is the kingdom of Judah. King Nebuchadnezzar left a governor there and a small band of people gathered around him and they could stay in the land. They still had a bit of a light there, a bit of a witness in that land to the people around them. But the governor was murdered and the people were scared. They thought, oh, the Babylonians are going to come and kill us. And Jeremiah said no. And so they're trying to make this decision. Do we go down to Egypt, which is a picture of the world, or do we stay where God wants us to be? Do we do the world's thing, our own thing, or God's thing? So I'm just going to read a little bit from Jeremiah chapter 42. It says, Now all the captains of the forces came near, verse 2, and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Please let our petition be acceptable to you, and pray for us to the Lord your God, for all this remnant, there's a few people left, that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing we should do. Sound good? Sounds like a nice thing to do. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard. Indeed, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare it to you. I will keep nothing back from you. So, sounds fantastic so far. So they said to Jeremiah, Let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. If we do not, do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us by you, whether it is pleasing or displeasing, in other words, whether it suits us or not, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. And it happened after ten days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Sounds great. <laughs> really, beautiful words. Beautiful, beautiful words. Jeremiah gives them the answer. The Lord has said concerning you, a remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Do not go to Egypt. Stay away from the world for us. So certainly that I have admonished you this day. And Jeremiah, through the Spirit, knows their hearts. He says in verse 20, For you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord your God says. So declare to us and we will do it. And a bit later on in the next chapter, you get the response of the people. And all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, You speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, Do not go to Egypt to dwell there. 
See, they were just hoping that God's answer would be the same as their answer. And so they went to Egypt and most of them died there from the things they were trying to escape, the sword, famine and disease. And the lamp or witness of Israel was extinguished because they just couldn't let go of Egypt, a type of the world and its attractions. Now the church is full of people like this, professing to be Christians but living like the world. Now some of these people I believe are false converts, but some of these people are just people who are true Christians but are backslidden in their walk with the Lord. They have refused to follow the will of God. They have refused to give up the things of the world that God is calling them to give up. They have set up idols in their hearts, things that are more important than God. Therefore, they will no longer hear from God until they obey the revelation they have already received. Now, this is just my opinion here, but I believe that God gives us or reveals to us one thing at a time. When we obey that one thing, then he'll show us the next thing. It's a stepwise thing. And that's what you see in the Bible. Where do we go? Okay, do this. Okay, I've done that. Okay, now do this. Now, the next thing is usually a harder thing and it requires more faith and trust. It's a journey of faith. If we choose to follow and depend on him, we go from strength to strength. Our faith gets stronger and stronger. If not, our sins or our love for the things of this world will eventually destroy us. So just to finish, remember that God loves you. You can trust him. Your heavenly father knows what is best for you and wants what is best for you. So learn to trust him, and then you will know his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if you want to know God's will, have faith and live a pure life. Get rid of any addictions. Get rid of anything that's in your life that's corrupting you, that's corrupting your mind, and then you can know. So, Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you for this passage about the Urim and the Thurim, um, the lights that the priest would go to to get guidance. and. Lord, I just pray that you help us to realize that we have you in our hearts. And the more we focus on you, the more we become like you, then the more we know your will and the more of your peace we will experience in our lives. So Lord, help us to be always seeking you and always be seeking not our own will, but your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.